Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. The history of the nurse anesthesia profession suggests that regardless of the challenge or crisis facing it, the right person at the right time with the right message was chosen by the membership to lead. This segment of our podcast is entitled The Courage to Lead. We are pleased to highlight some of these contemporary visionary leaders. We want to express gratitude to all and give encouragement to those that will accept the challenge in the future. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, Sharon, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's not quite five o'clock, but it is somewhere, right? (laughs) Well, that's a good thought. (laughs) We just got to see your daughter on Zoom. Yeah. I guess she uh, got through with her schoolwork at home. She did. So decided to come in and see what daddy was doing. She did. Her little brother's (laughs) taking a nap and mom is doing her laps up and down the driveway. And of course, I'm in here working, so... Just Quarantining is fun. Quarantining <laughs> is fun. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, we are back at it again and in our quarantine studios, not together, but we can see each other. And uh, with technology's help, we've got another great episode lined up. Absolutely. I've been waiting for a long time to get this lady on our podcast. <laughs> well, let's introduce this lady. The uh, well, We'll call her Elusive now. Deb Geisler. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Deb. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And this is a continuation of what we call our Courage to Lead series. You were a past president of the ANA. And and when was that? Oh, it was back when the Earth's crust cooled, I think. Uh, actually, it was, you know, that that's not probably a good thing for me to say because, you know, one of my dearest friends served right in front of me. So I'm sure Larry Hornsville will have a lot to say about me saying that. But it was 2001, 2002. Oh, you mean the Silver Fox. Uh, is that who we're the talking about? Silver the Fox. Silver exactly Fox. Exactly right. Mr. Exactly. Hornsby. <laughs> yes. Well, you're actually, uh, you know, Sharon and I are both in North Carolina, and you're actually a North Carolina girl yourself. I certainly am. Yeah. Tar Heel born and bred, there yes. There you go. Tar Heel graduate. 
Mm-hmm. Wonderful, yeah. And uh, been around a little bit. You were in South Carolina for a little while. Yeah, I was in South Carolina. Actually, when I finished nursing school, I moved to Charleston and worked as an RN in their intensive care unit. So I was at the Medical University of South Carolina Okay. and ended up doing my nurse anesthesia program there at MUSC in Charleston. And then from there, I moved to Greenville, which is the northwest corner of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I lived there and worked in the level one trauma center for greater than 22, 23 years. Yeah. And now you've really moved south. I really have. But, you know, for those of us who are true Southerners, there's a question about whether Florida really is the South. We all know that. We all yeah. know that. But, <laughs> but, yeah. but it is warmer there. So, Yeah. But, you know, actually living in Jacksonville, we say we live in South Georgia. So that makes it a little bit more like home for me. There you go. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, we're looking. You're for- not that far from Georgia, right? Uh, no, in Jacksonville. no, not at all. Yeah. Like 40 miles from the state line. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think we've got a good podcast lined up for folks today. And I think maybe one of the first things is just to have you give us maybe a historical overview of the supervision battle that just seems to never go away. And we're still talking about it today. Um, Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, almost from the beginning of uh, nurse anesthesia, we've been having battles with our physician cohorts here. So why don't you just fill us in a little bit on your viewpoint? Well, thank you. First of all, I want to take a minute to thank you and Sharon for doing this. I mean, I think it's wonderful that you are capturing highlights of from a historical and actually personal perspective of nurse anesthetists. And I have been actively listening to your podcast, and I think that you both have been very instrumental in uncovering and bringing to the forefront a lot of good things about our profession. And for that, I am really very uh, appreciative. We, I, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. This morning, I reviewed a little bit from Sandy's podcast when she talked about TEFRA and some of the battles they have with TEFRA. And although the subject was a little bit different, a lot of the mindset and the posturing seems to be consistent with our physician counterparts. And in reality, the whole supervision thing, although it was signed into rule when I was president, but you know, like we've heard many people say, it sometimes takes a village to raise a child. And in this instance, it took many, many members of the AANA and multiple boards of the AANA to bring us to the closure and signing of the opt-out process. The first time it really came up in conversation for consideration was when I was a newbie, a brand new board member. I was the Region 2 director from South Carolina and Nancy Brute Marie was president. And I remember it very succinctly. It was what used to be called the Assembly of School Faculty. And it was in Fort Lauderdale. And what I remember is that we were sequestered to this almost underground room. And the sun was beautiful and shining outside. And we could hear all the laughter and what have you as the boats go by. And Nancy turned to us and said, I think we need to talk about supervision and seeing if we can bring the uh, membership to the opportunity of being able to not be restricted by supervision guidelines. And I thought, wow, you know, honestly, I didn't really know a lot about it, but she and then other boards and other presidents beyond Nancy 
were very instrumental in schooling us and helping all of the board members to understand how important it is. And it was Nancy and then Scott Foster, then Linda Williams, then Jan Stewart, and then Larry Hornsby's boards that worked so diligently and nonstop to try to bring the opt-out to fruition. And it actually was the final rule was published in January of 2001. And that was during my, that was during my tenure. Now, unfortunately, as politics have it, it was frozen. And then a new rule was proposed in July of 2001. And then the final rule did go in, it was enacted in November of 2001. So from there, as we all know, we've had 17 states opt out from supervision. Now, I think that we all have an appreciation for exactly what the problem with supervision was. It's a federal, it's a federal law that says that nurse anesthetists must be supervised by a physician. It counterbalances or goes against the mindset of a lot of the rules and provisions that are in states. And so there was a conflict, if you would, between what the federal government says and then what the state government says about how a nurse anesthetist can practice. So what we really did was just try to say to lawmakers, just defer to state law. Whatever the state says for provisions for nurse anesthetists to practice, just allow that to stand, not only from a state standpoint, but from a federal standpoint for the constituents of that state. So I can go and on. And that's on how we got. <laughs> that, well, that's how we wound up with the opt out. So they did hear part of the argument that you put forward. The thing that I find frustrating is people don't understand, I think, that this is about reimbursement. The anesthesiologist tied it to standards of care. And that was never the intent nor purpose of it. It's just a billing issue uh, for, uh, for hospitals to get paid for other things. And that little piece has been very onerous, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it must've been something when you stood up before the membership and said that that rule had been put into place. And I'm sure it was equally as devastating whenever it was rescinded. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it, and when it was frozen, Sharon, that's a political ploy. You know, um, at the time we had a wonderful president, but his ear was kind of held on to by our physician counterparts and Mm -hmm. they persuaded. Well, are you sure? Are you sure it was his ear? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) might have been something else they they had. But, you know, they persuaded him to stop. And remember back in the day, I mean, when all this campaign was going on, our physician counterparts were saying, if this rule goes into play, there are going to be bodies stacked up behind mm. the hospital because CRNAs are not competent enough to be able to deliver anesthesia. I think what they forget, though, is in many of the states, especially in, in the beloved, what we call the, the breadbasket of the United States, the majority of the anesthesia providers there are nurse anesthetists. And, you know, to say, well, we're not confident, well, then how can you explain that the majority of the anesthesia and not only the breadbasket, but the majority of the anesthesia in the country is delivered by nurse anesthetists? So I remember this. 
yeah. so vividly exactly what you're talking about because I was NCANA president at the time mm-hmm. and they were just writing it was, painful it was letters. Awful. Uh, it was to awful. The, the legislatures saying we couldn't read EKGs. We, again, like you're saying, it was so vile that we were killing people. Exactly, exactly. And you bring up a really good point. It is a reimbursement issue. You know, people need to remember that it's Medicare from the government payment. It's part A. It is part A, which is a very small part of the pie that brings in reimbursement for hospitals to do things like have a cafeteria or have, you know, ancillary services, what we now in the COVID-19 era probably call non-essential services, if you would. But, you know, it was reimbursement to hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers. Part B on the other hand, is what the anesthesiologist wanted to say it was about, which is reimbursement to a provider. And that's not mm-hmm. at all what it was. And the other point that you brought up is it limited a lot from a standpoint if supervision stayed in place because it could be an obstacle to hospital reimbursement. It could be a disincentive to utilize the services of nurse anesthetists. You know, it could promote the perception of an increased physician liability because, mm-hmm. you know, how many times have I heard A surgeon say to me, well, you know, aren't I liable for your actions if I sign your chart, which goes into a wonderful article that years ago, Jean Blumenreich, who was our legal counsel at the time, wrote about the captain of the ship doctrine. And Mm -hmm. I would find myself in the operating room saying, well, you know, you are not liable for my actions unless you say these things. Don't do this. You must do this. You have to limit this. You are on the other side of what I affectionately call the blood-brain barrier. I'm on Mm -hmm. one side, you're on the other, and you trust me to do what I've been trained and licensed and credentialed to do, and that is to deliver a safe, effective anesthesia, anesthetic. So I have my own malpractice. I have my own liability. So there has never been a case where a physician's name has ever been substituted for a nurse anesthetist in a liability or malpractice suit. Have they been named concomitantly? Yes, that has happened. But has there ever been a case where a physician has taken the place of a nurse anesthetist in liability? The answer is no. You are exactly right. Well, I know that this took up a large part of your presidency. But we also know there's always other things going on at the same time. You're not just a one trick pony whenever you're AADNA <laughs> president, and especially not you. But I know that the small states aid mm. or fund, I think we call it SODC now. I right. mean, you know, we always have reiterations of how we name things. So why don't you <clears throat> talk about how all that started? Because you were okay. there at the beginning. I was. And this was when I was treasurer of the ANA. I was fortunate enough to serve in all seven positions on the ANA board. I was regional director. I was treasurer. I'm not seven, five, I guess. Regional director, treasurer, vice president, president elect, and president. And so it afforded me quite the overview of a lot of what goes into making our association as wonderful and strong as it is. 
1999 at the business meeting, there were two dues increase proposals that were presented to the membership. The first proposal, which I'll call proposal A, sought to increase the dues by $25 a year for four years. And with that $25, they wanted $10 of that increase allocation to those to state associations. Now let's scroll back into 1999. Remember when I started talking about supervision, I told you that it started with Nancy's year. And so Nancy was 1996. So there was already some momentum happening within the AANA to ramp up us going to trying to get supervision removed. So the states recognize that that's going to open up, as we say in the South, a big old can of worms. Our big old can of, you know, whoop, yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, so they were coming and saying, we need some more help. Now, so $10 of that $25 over the four years was to go back to the state. Proposal B sought to increase dues for four years too, but instead of it being allocated to the ANA and the state association, it wanted it allocated all to the associations and the ANA, but in a different fashion with two newly created funds called the state supplement fund and the tactical fund. Well, Proposal A, dues increase over four years, $25 failed, and Proposal B was tabled. And this was, I believe, the meeting in Boston back then. And Dan Simonson stood up and said, well, then I would like to propose a revolution. Uh, no, a resolution. A resolution. Dan might have proposed well, a revolution. It wa- well, it, well it, was a, <laughs> it was a revolution. Yeah. And what he wanted was for the board of directors to look at the definition of small states and to see what needs to happen to strengthen small states. So from there, an ad hoc committee was formed and it had seven members and they wanted members from small states and members from large states. And this committee was, uh, small states was Lori Basie from North Dakota Chuck Goslin from Utah, Cheryl Richter from Delaware. From large states was Bill Miller from Iowa, Wendell Spencer from Nebraska, and Steve Yermal from Illinois. But then Steve fell ill and was replaced by Brian Thorson from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Now, we met twice, once in December and once in January. And I must tell you, I cannot think of another time where I thought I was in a room with so much positive brain power. These folks were phenomenal. They were absolutely phenomenal. And we accomplished so much in those two meetings to where we could bring a recommendation back to the board. And so this was our recommendation is To be able to find a small state, don't limit it to the number of people. Talk about the financial help of a small state and figure out where you think a breaking point would be to where you would say that a state would have what we would determine a minimum operating budget. And the committee came up with Mm $44,000, which was necessary to comply with, at the time, the minimum elements document. Do you remember that document? I do. I remember filling it out as a state president. There you Mm -hmm. go. There you go. And what we found was 
28 states needed various levels of financial assistance to be able to meet that minimum operating budget. And then the committee also recommended uh, an establishment of what we call the organizational health allocation, which later became known as the SODC. DC. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was state operations fund to assist eligible states in meeting the minimum operating budget in order to comply with the mental elements. And states would be able to eligible to receive the difference between that minimum proposed budget of 44,000 and what they actually have in their coffers. So that would help them bring them up to what we term to be a healthy place. And then the other thing that we wanted to do was to create my way of looking at it was a war chest because mm -hmm. we recognized that more and more there were coming issues to where our practice was trying to be limited. And so we felt that we needed to establish what we call the strategic reserve fund to assist all state associations and the AANA to help deal with any time there is an attempt to limit the CRNA practice. So that was the premise, and that's what we came forward with. And with that came a dues increase. And it was over three years. The first year was $35 to the membership. The second year was $25, and the third year was $15. The ANA agreed their part, agreed to give $5 per member to go into establishing both of these funds. And I can remember presenting this. Oh, well, the other thing that we did is we took this on the road. So anytime I went to a state mm -hmm. organization, I requested if I could do this presentation to help people understand what exactly this was all about, because it, it was, it was a little bit complex to kind of wrap your head around. And I remember when the committee came together and we put our final proposal together and presented it at the annual business meeting and it was accepted. So that's how it came to be that we have the SODC. And that's how it came to be that we have also a strategic reserve fund. And the other thing of interest is if a state or the ANA were to come to the strategic reserve fund to ask for help, it was in the form of a loan. It was understood that it was a loan. Now, Historically, as far back as I can remember, there's only been one state that has ever really paid back their loan to the AANA, and that's been Minnesota. Yeah, you know, because if mm. yeah, you remember that battle that Minnesota had oh, forever yes. and ever and a day. Exactly. And I think that the Strategic Reserve Fund was probably very instrumental in helping them along the way, and to which I know that they were very grateful. So that happened in 99 and it passed in 2000. And then that's how we started with the dues increase. The dues increase was initiated for 2001 and it went for three years. And I remember because, again, I was state president. It froze the amount of money that went to the states. So basically exactly. what happened is the larger states were helping fund and help the smaller states. So I was president of North Carolina, one of the largest states. 
but it froze the amount of money because I know now they get two thirty two fifty back from your dues goes back to the states, but it froze right. at one thirty two fifty. Yeah, that's yeah, a really so good point. Only, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So see the whole idea was it's kind of like we're all in this together. Right. The individual, the state and the AANA, if we're going to make this work, everybody's got to give a little bit. And that's kind of the way we tried to present it so people would understand that this was not just asking the members to endure a dues increase over three years, but everybody else was, it was a three pronged process, if you would. So all parties were helping establish this and fund this. So, you know, it, it was a very exciting time for me. You know, I was, I remember being at the business meetings. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember somebody said to me, are you sure you want to do this? Because what happens if it fails? And I said, you know, I believe in this. I think that we can come up with something that will work that the membership will embrace. And, you know, hats off to those folks, the members from the small and large states, because they were phenomenal, absolutely mm-hmm. phenomenal. You know. Hey, Deborah. Yeah. Well, the question. other piece that ca- ca- let me. Let Go me, ahead, Shane. I'm sorry, Jeremy. The other piece that came out of this that I thought was really good is that, and I don't remember the behind the scenes part, but they came up with a plan for states that were at risk for attack. And went in and helped each of those states because our original thought processes were that our opposition would start attacking small states Mm -hmm. and peeling them off one at a time, which Mm -hmm. is not exactly the way it happened. They had enough gumption that they just started at the big states and got their asses whooped (laughs) like (laughs) North Carolina. Yeah. But no, I mean, it was brilliant. The entire thing was brilliant. I can remember sitting yeah. in the audience watching all of this unfold as a member sitting out in the audience. It was amazing. Well, and you know, you are from a large state and I got to tell you, there was some concerns that large states would not embrace this. And you know what? I mean, it was so rewarding to every part, every one of us on that committee to see that people were going, yeah, we think this is a good idea. You know, and and the other part that you very well remembered and brought out, which I thank you for, is, you know, we just didn't people didn't sit back and wait to be attacked. We prepared Mm -hmm. this allowed us uh, allowed states to be prepared in the event something happened in their state. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeremy, we'll let you talk now. Sorry, Jeremy, you got two. That's okay. Sometimes that's the way these things go. Sometimes Sharon uh, is a little bored, and sometimes me. But no, I was just wondering. You know, I I think if we announced to CRNAs today that we were having a dues increase, I imagine there would be a huge pushback against that. And I just wonder, you know, in your presidency, you know, you you phase it in over three years, and, and obviously today, $35, $25, $15 is not a big deal. But if I, I still feel like if we tried to do that today, it would be this mass moaning that you would hear. What happened uh, during your time? You know, honestly, 
And, you know, I know that the human brain is conditioned to remember the positive and not the negative. I understand that. But I honestly do not remember. I never felt like I was accosted by a member, you know, saying, why do you think that we should do this? Why do you think I should support this? I really felt like it was largely accepted, (laughs) you know, and can I tell you that I was nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof before I got up there to make that presentation? You darn tootin' I was. I mean, I was like, this could be horrible for me, for me personally, but also for me, if I wanted to continue serving on, on the ANA Board of Directors. I mean, this could have nixed my going anywhere beyond being treasurer of the ANA. Yeah. But like I said, I thought this was a good thing and call me stubborn, I guess, but you know, it was, it was worth it. But I really, Jeremy, don't remember. I don't remember that much negative at all. Hmm. You know, I don't, I, I never, don't remember either. Yeah. I don't remember anybody from a large state saying, why do you think we should help a small state? You know, hmm. I, I just think there was a sense of brotherhood, sisterhood that, yeah, you know, I mean, we're on the precipice of, something that could really be bad for all of us. So let's bind together and, and make this work. Hey, hey Sharon, do you know and how that long was the last dues increase? Matter of fact, what I was getting There's ready to ask you, how long has it been? Then. So how many years has that been? There's not been one since. Well, yeah, that was, it started in Oh one. So the last dues increase was in, uh, that was Oh three. So mm-hmm. actually though, Sharon, I'm looking at a history of allocation of dues. Um, we have had 03, we did have an increase in 07 and 09, actually. Hmm. So, um, it's still been 03, a long time ago. It has, yeah. it has with the allocation, with the SODC request from the 35, 25, 15, that brought our dues up to $495 in 03. And what are they now? Six something? 645. So in 03. Five, no, I'm sorry. In 07, they went to 545. And then in 09, they went to 645. And they've been 645 since 09. Wow. So if yeah, you just think about still 11 years. But if you think it about is. that in terms of nominal dollars, I mean, inflation obviously has been low over the last 10 years. But let's just even use a, a 2% inflation rate. That means dues really have gone down in buying power by 20%. Mm-hmm. But CRNA salaries have gone up by exponentially more than that. Exactly. It's That's a very good point. Just a way to think very about good it. Point. So. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, have I a feeling. can remember Ira Gunn standing up and talking about this, though, at the microphone whenever this whole movement was going forward. Yeah. What's your memory about that? Everybody listening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to her. Yeah. Everybody oh, yeah. listened to her. Right. And, you know, she was all of what, five foot one, if that. (laughs) Well, you know, you seem to be a giant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You think of the Wizard of Oz. You know, that's what I think of when I think of Ira. You know, she was a petite little thing. But when she spoke, everybody listened. Hmm. You know, she was a phenomenal, phenomenal CRNA. You know? Yeah. And we didn't have to be, uh, I could understand. She was from Texas and had, 
you think I've got a Southern accent. Now, Ira had a Southern accent <laughs> and yeah. I could understand her. I didn't need a translator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of is, you know, and I, I must tell you that being part of that committee that put the SODC into play is something that I am eternally grateful for having having the opportunity to serve with those people because that group was I mean sometimes I would walk out of there like I got I mean my hair would be standing out on ends and you know that's a lot that's a lot because there was so much energy in that room I remember I remember back in the day when we had those big white sheets of paper on the on the, you know, the big palette and you would write with the magic marker mm -hmm. and then you tear it off and you tape it on the wall. Mm -hmm. So, and you keep on going, the whole daggum room would be covered <laughs> with papers taped on the wall because of so many ideas coming from everywhere. I mean, it was phenomenal. They, they were just an unreal group and all got along, you know, I mean, we, right. it was, it was not a childish, you know, name-calling group, although clearly three of them were from large states and three were from small states, but it worked. It worked. And a special thanks to Louis Rivera. He was our staff person. And, you know, Louis is such a diamond, in my opinion, to the AANA, the things that he has done over all the years that he has served the AANA. And he truly was a stabilizer when things would get a little bit heated, you know, he would kind of give me the eye like, you know, we need a break or, you know, let's go on to something else. He was a very good temperature taker, you know, thermometer. Yeah, I know. I wonder, he's been with us well over 30 some years. And yes, yes. I know he's going to have to retire sometime. I hope not anytime soon yeah, because he is amazing. He well, is, you yeah. seem to be in the middle of a lot of hot topics in your career with the AANA. <laughs> so let's talk about the region realignment, which is a topic yeah. that is brewing right now. Yeah. And so why don't you talk about that? <laughs> okay, I will. So don't I remember that last year there was something passed that now the idea is that region directors don't come from a region. They're just directors. Right. Is that right? Okay. All right. So before I get into what our committee did, allow me to give you a little historical perspective about the regional directors and the voting and yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. You know, this has gone on for a long time. In 1947, there was a planning committee that was formed to begin examining a proposal to establish what's called a House of Delegates, which is to effectively represent the membership. I've got a little bit of notes here. I'm sure you can tell. At the 1951 business meeting, they called for an indefinite postponement of an implementation of the House of Delegates, partly because the ANA didn't have a regional structure. So they tabled that for a while. Then move forward in 53, they looked at establishing a basic regional structure for electing trustees to the House of Delegates. The state composition of the regions has been altered since then on of a semi-regular basis. 
1953, there was regions one, two, three, four, and five established. So five regions established across the United States. In 1965, they established region six because they divided region one. In 1973, they established Region 7 because they took some states out of Region 2 and Region 4. And then in 1986, Montana removed itself from Region 4 and went to Region 5. So as you can see, there has been a lot that has gone on with how we came to be in Region. You know, and then in 1986, the business meeting that it required the board to please ask them to study the allocation of states into regions. And then President Peggy McFadden made an ad hoc committee looking at reallocation of the regions. Then in 87, the committee said there doesn't need to be any change. So they left it the way it is. In 98, the Delaware Association requested that the ANA consider revising the regions. In 1999, the board appointed a task force and they said there was no need to do anything. So then you come to 2003 and that's where the committee that I served with came into being. Now, committee members, I was the chair somehow. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know that I seek heat, but it seems like I find it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say, sure. you've been a lot of heat <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> Starting to get me sweating under so, the collar a little uh, bit. So, yeah. so <laughs> I, I chaired it. We had Paul Kilmartin, Charles Leonard, Tom McKibben, Jackie Rouse, James Walker, and Betty Wild. So that was. Wow. What a yes, that's, that's a lot. There you go. So. In 2003, the recommendation was to look at the reallocation. So from that, they made a task force, okay? It was the result of a membership resolution from the 2000 business meeting that asked the board to create a task force to investigate the current structure of seven regions. Why do we have seven regions? And the perception here was small states felt like they had difficulty getting people elected to serve on the board. Mm -hmm. So that's the crux of this representation on the board of directors. And we were charged to investigate the current structure of the seven regions and make recommendations to the board regarding possibly redistricting each of them. So in 2004, there was a statistical analysis done to see if there really was any, if you would, proof to the pudding that the way the seven regions were structured had anything to do with the electability. And statistically, it was proven that it did not. So that was presented at the 2004 board meeting. And what they asked us to do was either TT or get off the pot in essence. They reappointed the committee and they said, you either develop one recommendation to make no change to the current regional directors or recommend the most effective regional director structure to enhance member representation on the board of directors. So from there, we as a committee devised a study and we sent it out to the members. And this is how we did that. We had emailed 3,000 random members. We also tapped into 369 past national and state leaders, either ANA past presidents, board of director members, state presidents, or committee members. And from that pool, 
we had approximately 800 respondents, so about a 25% response rate. With that sample size, it showed that we had no more than 3.5% of margin of error with a 95% confidence level. So we felt pretty good about our results. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that we asked. The ultimate role of regional directors, are they to represent all members across the United States equally? 25% of the respondents said yes. Are they to represent members in the region primarily and the rest of the membership secondarily? 60% said yes to that. Or are they to represent stake organizational interests primarily and individual interests secondarily? And 15% said yes to that. So that was number one we asked. Number two is the most important factors for an effective regional structure. And this was interesting, 42% said geographic proximity of the states within a region. And 46% said the equity in numbers of members per region. 5% said equity in numbers of number of states per region. And 7% said it didn't matter. <laughs> so that was something that we, we looked at as well. Then the third thing that we looked at is change voting mechanism to vote within the region only. And that meant should only the members in a region elect their regional director? Obviously not the president-elect treasurer and vice president, but the regional director that is to represent you on the ANA board of directors. Should that be a regional election? 74% of the respondents said, yes, it should. 26% said, no, it shouldn't. And then the last thing we asked was, should the ANA change the region structure? 63% said, yes, you should. And 37% said, no, you shouldn't. Hmm. So we found that we had a lot of data to chew on there. So from that, this committee came up with a five region concept. Now, five reason regions, but two regional directors from each region. Now, regional directors, as we all know, serve for two years, so they would stagger. So they mm -hmm. would not be elected at the same time. And the criteria would be no region could have both members from one state. OK, so that would allow more accessibility within the state, which was a really big key point. Right. So we brought this and presented it to yet another business meeting in 2005. And there came from the membership a request to look at a 10-region scenario, a 10-region format for the AANA. So we went back to the drawing board. And for three months, we had many, many conference calls. We had one meeting in the beginning, conference calls in the middle. And then at the end of three months, we all came back together. And honestly, we could not come up with a 10-region concept that addresses the parity in the number of states in the region and also geographical proximity because those, as you remember, were very important based mm -hmm. on the survey that we had. So we came back with, we think that the five-region, two directors per region is a really good idea. Now, we recognize it's not perfect. This was a very hard subject. You know, 
it was very hard and I'm going to be very frank. There was a lot of disagreement amongst the members in the committee to try to find a reasonable solution. So, you know, we brought it to the board, the board presented it to the membership and it was voted down. So that's pretty much how that all came to be. So that's how we still are with our seven region makeup for the ANA. But now I understand that's about to change yet again. So it was soothing for me to realize that there had been numerous other attempts for a committee to look at this and to come up with something that would work. And it seems as if that's a hard thing to do. And, you know, my take mm -hmm. home from that is change is hard and none of us like to change. And I can't help but think that that had a lot to do with this. And if I can go to the question Jeremy asked me about how with the supervision or, or with the small states, how did people react to this? Not pleasantly at all. I had many members come up to me and say, why do you want to move me out of my region? I like where I am. What are you and your committee doing? Why are you doing this? So it was not a very popular subject. I can pretty much feel confident in saying that. Deb, you have uh, almost made me tired just listening to you. <laughs> Because, and I don't mean in a, in a bad way, I'm just thinking, okay, supervision opt-out, small yeah. states aid, raise dues, strategic reserve fund, region realignment. I mean, you did a tremendous amount of things, obviously not you personally with committee and everybody's help, right. but you were involved in these areas that just kind of make me cringe knowing CRNAs <laughs> the way I know them um, yeah. at this point. I mean, you know, it's, and to still, uh, you know, to still have made it through it and done such a wonderful job. I mean, this is, and, and it's funny, I watch Sharon interact with you and, you know, Sharon says my job is as much being a psychiatrist or psychologist in what I do. And I can just pick up on between you and Sharon speaking, the amount of pure respect that she has for you. And it, it's, well, it's so I, you funny. Know, and I have a lot of respect for Sharon, a lot, you know. And thank you for that, Sharon. Yeah. Thank oh, well, you, girl. You know, thank you, girl. <laughs> you know I've always been a member of your fan club anyway, and that's why you've got to get back to the meetings. And, you know, we wanted to get you a new fan club, too, because – 70% of our listeners are from 23 to 34 years of age mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have been around. They don't know what you have done. They don't know who you are. They just see your name on a piece of paper and have no idea that the reason why they are able to practice the way that they do today is because of people like you and all of this time and treasure that you spent countless 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 hours and I can remember sitting in the audience watching you and just being amazed by all of that and you know I drank from wells that I did not dig as Sandy Ouellette talks about and you helped dig the wells and wow. I'm drinking from it and these kids that are listening are drinking from it but the kind of 
pull us full circle here with all of these leadership places that you have been in. What is some of the, the most valuable leadership lessons that you have learned that you'd like to share with our listeners, our up and comers? You know, actually two things come to mind. Listen to people. Listen. I can tell you one of the largest learning tools that I had by serving on the ANA Board of Directors is listening to the membership. Now, sometimes it takes a little while to get through to what they're trying to relay to you. But, you know, we are a membership driven organization. And if it weren't for our members, we would not be. And I think listening to our members and folks on the board of directors, listening to members is so very important. It is so very important. And the other thing that I would like people to think about is there's another side to being a nurse anesthetist besides being one of the best anesthesia providers in this country. And it is your, your profession. It is the AANA. It is the other side of your profession, your professional involvement. You know, I mean, it's all about, you know, to use that same pay it forward. That's what people need to do. I mean, we need to be able to, as some of the older folks in the AANA, we need to try to light a fire under some of our younger members to help them understand why it's important to be a member of the AANA and why it's important to get involved with that professional association. Because if they believe that because they're a certified registered nurse anesthetist, that's going to allow them to practice until they decide to retire, they need to think again. The reason people are able to practice is because of people like you and people like all the other presidents and people who have served on boards and countless committees that dig their heels in in the trenches and make things happen. That's what I'd like for young people to understand, you know? And the camaraderie that you get from that. I mean, you know, the friendships. One of the things that I so enjoy on Facebook is watching you and the girls, as you call them, yeah. on the trips that y'all take. It's just wonderful to see that camaraderie, you know? Yeah. So I think those would be the two things that I want to have people remember me for. Yeah. Well, I think that was well said. And Deb, we just want to thank you for being on the show today. And uh, obviously for the, the multitude of things you carried on your back for this association and the members and to kind of get the ANA to where it is today. And you played a role in that. And I know everyone should be thanking you for that. So thank you. Oh, well, you know what, though, Jeremy, I got to tell you, I had fun. I had a lot of fun. You know, I mean, it's been a very big part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. My life would not be as full without, as full without, you know, the relationships that I established with the ANA. So, well, and I, and I see I that. She got a husband. She got a husband from it. Uh oh. Wait a minute. I didn't know about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her husband's a CRNA. Oh. I remember when they started yeah. dating. That's and now I've got to tell this memory. I Uh-oh. must have been on the PR committee. I think you were president elect at the time. I could be wrong, but I can remember being in the back of 
a truck. We were in Brent Summers' truck in Fort Lauderdale after we had all been to dinner and we're going, (laughs) we were in the back. Of course, you and I, Southern girls, we know about being in the back of pickup trucks riding down the road. (laughs) Sharon, I don't know where this story is going, but I'm looking forward to the end of it. (laughs) It's just to say that it can be fun. Yeah, You can work hard, but you can play hard. Yeah, and, and we had a good time. Yeah. And, and I see that. Uh, I see we that have a with, lot of good memories with the, with Absolutely. all the CRNAs who are out there and are at the forefront of leading this organization. There are friendships and relationships, and you all feed off of each other and learn from each other, and you carry yourselves in such a professional way. I mean, it, it, it's. I look at it and it just gets me excited even to be affiliated with you guys because I learned so much from each one of you, even though I'm not in the industry, but it does, I feel like it raises me up just to be around you guys. So I appreciate that. So, and even Sharon, you know, I, I don't tell her that very often, but you know, I, I oh what God, she's done and accomplished <laughs> and, you know, I mean, really, literally it does. It, it makes me think sometimes I need to be doing more. Because you guys do. Well, you know, even if you haven't seen anybody for quite some time, I know whenever my dad died, I immediately got a text from Deb with the sweetest message about my daddy. Because, of course, you know, everybody followed all the convos with daddy on Facebook. (laughs) But I hadn't seen Deb in a long time. But immediately that message came through at a time when I needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's well, those are friendships, and uh, yes, you can't they put are. a price on they that. And, and when you're in the trenches with somebody, you never forget that. So, yeah. But, well, Deb, we we really want to thank you. I, th- I think this has been wonderful, and you know, we really do appreciate you being on with us today. So, Sharon, I I think we're going to call it a wrap. You guys, I appreciated this. I appreciated this opportunity. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's positive. That's right. There's enough negativity in the world. Give us some love. Until next time. (laughs) It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. 
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.